0: Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. You know, for over 40 years, I've been privileged to be a somewhat regular chapel speaker here at my alma mater Southwestern Seminary. And uh, in the past, I've used this particular text for other generations who come before. And so what we're gonna to share today is nothing that, You shouldn't already know, but as Peter said in his second epistle, I'm going to share some things with you. You already know, but I'm doing so to stir you up by way of remembrance. And so sometimes it's just good to be stirred up about biblical truth that we might apply to our lives by way of remembrance. Many years ago, I was devotionally reading through the Gospels, as I've done throughout my entire Christian experience of decades now, and yet that particular time, I saw something that I'd seen before, but I'd never really seen. Has that ever happened to you? And you know what it was? It was the numbers of times that our Lord asked questions. Recorded in scripture. Now he was omniscient. He had all knowledge. And yet we find him on almost every page of scripture asking questions. I was so intrigued by this that I counted them. And there are 150 at least unique questions that escape the lips of our Lord that have been recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, the second book in our code series of devotionals of 15 volumes now was on this very subject. It's called The Jesus Code. 52 scripture questions every believer ought to be able to answer. I believe there are 52 questions in the Bible that every born-again believer in Christ ought to be able to answer before they get to heaven. I heard one time someone say that leadership can be characterized by certain punctuation marks. Think about it because it's very true. Some people think that leadership is characterized by the period, the mandate, the command. Go here, go there, do this, do that, fire him, hire her. The command, the period. And some people lead that way. Some people think that leadership can be characterized by the exclamation point. Enthusiasm and optimism and expectancy and the ability to woo people and persuade people by a great charismatic ability in your speaking ability. And so leadership, some people think is characterized by the exclamation point, but more often than not, when you think about it, real leaders are characterized by that symbol that is bent in humility. And we call it the question mark. Leaders ask questions. And Jesus is certainly our example here. I took those questions that he asked in the gospels and I wrote every single one of them down on legal pads And spent the next month or so in my own devotional life just meditating on those questions. Going through each of those questions that escaped the lips of our Lord. And the more I'd meditated on them, the more I looked at them and lived with them, the more I became convinced that every epoch of Christian history has had a question from the lips of our Lord for whom and to whom it was particularly applicable and the march on through the centuries of the Christian faith was ultimately determined by the way that epoch of Christian history answered the question of their time. Think about it. Think about that first epoch of Christian history. We read about it in the book of Acts, spilling over then into the first couple of, uh, of generations of Christian history. They had a question from the lips of our Lord that became the question of their time. It was the question Jesus asked in John 13, 38, when he asked, will you lay down your life for my sake? That was the question of their time. And they they did. They answered it. Every one of those apostles, say John, met a violent, brutal, martyr's death. Being crucified, being burned at the stake, being decapitated. Spilling over in the next generations, Polycarp, the great pastor of the church at Smyrna, burned at the stake. Ignatius, the pastor of the great missionary church at Antioch, thrown to the wild animals. I've stood there in Tunis at ancient Carthage where Perpetua, that young mother, was put to death there in the Colosseum in Carthage. And by the thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands, that first epoch of Christian history met their martyrs' death with the question of their time burning in their hearts, will you lay down your life for me? And anybody who's ever taken an elementary course in church history or missiology has heard the phrase that, yes, the blood of those martyrs became the seed of church growth. And because they answered the question of their time, the church continued to march through the centuries until we come to the second epoch of Christian history. And another question emerged from the lips of our Lord that became the question of their time. It was a question he asked in Matthew 22, verse 42, when Jesus asked this question, What think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? You see, a heresy had risen in the early church led by a man named Arius of Alexandria who began to propound that Christ was not co-equal and coexistent with the Father, but was in his essence created by the Father. And that heresy took them to a place called Nicaea in 325 AD. Remember that Athanasius was the great defender of the faith and stood there in the council of Nicaea and defended the deity of Christ. And there through that Nicene Creed, they established once and for all, yes, Jesus Christ was co-equal, coexistent with the Father of the same nature, God, deity himself. And they answered the question of their time. What think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? And because they did, the church continued to march with power through the centuries until we come to the next epoch of Christian history and we find the church in a dark period, held in the clutches of the Roman popes. And another question from the lips of our Lord arose that became the question of their time. It was the question he asked in John chapter 11, verse 40, when he said, Did I not say unto you that if you would believe If you would be people of faith and faith alone, you would see the glory of God. And armed with the question of his time and the truth of the book of, of Romans, Martin Luther, Luther took his 95 theses and nailed them to the church door at Wittenberg. And the glory of God through that great faith movement we now call the Reformation began to spread westward through Europe, through Calvin and Zwingli and Knox in Scotland, our Anabaptist forefathers, Hubmire, Mance, and so many others. And they answered the question of their time that the gospel is a gospel of faith alone in Jesus Christ. And then we come to the next epoch of Christian history. And yet another question arose that became the question of their time. And it was the question Jesus asked in Luke chapter 18, verse 8. When he asked this question, he asked, When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith over the earth? When I come back, Jesus asked, am I gonna find the gospel? Am I gonna find faith spread over all the earth and burdened by that question and armed with the question of their time? Men and their wives like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and, and Adonai and, and Judson left the comforts and confines of home and hearth for faraway places that we used to call like Burma. And, Africa and India and China and the modern missionary movement was begun that continues to this day with hundreds upon thousands of people leaving their own home and hearts to go to serve Christ over this earth and they answered the question of their time and we've taken the gospel to the nations to this very day and then comes the next epoch: late 20th uh, late 19th early 20th century another question arose from the lips of our Lord that became the question of the church's time in that day. And it was the question he asked in John 6, verse 67, when he asked this, will you also go away? And we watched as one mainline denomination after another, after another, after another, after another, another, left the founding principles of their founders and the doctrinal truths of the word of God to follow after liberalism and her twin children of pluralism and inclusivism. And thank God, there were a group of evangelicals who said, we won't go away. When Jesus asked, will you also go away? We stood for him. That's why you, you are studying in a seminary here today, because people in the past generation in Christian history answered the question in our world. And that's why you study in a place today where every professor here believes in the inerrancy of Scripture and holds to the doctrinal truths that were established on this hill 115 years ago. And so now you live in a new epoch of Christian history. And you prepare here for ministry to go out all over the world and you need to understand that there is a question that has escaped the lips of our Lord that is as applicable for you as any of these questions in earlier epochs of Christian history. It's the question of our text Where Jesus asked in Matthew 16, verse 15, Who do you say? Not who do you think. Who do you study about? Who do you wish me? Who do you profess? Who do you say that I am? This is the issue of your day as you go to ministry. This issue of the exclusivity of Christ. The Christ who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father unless he goes through me. As you go out to minister in an increasing pluralistic culture all around you, when this smacks in the face of political correctness, will you answer the question of your time? Who do you say that I am? You see, there are only two kinds of leadership doesn't matter whether it's in the church, in the home, in the office, in government, the political arena. There are only two kinds of leaders. There are those who lead by public consensus. Those are people who don't take a stand on issue. This is political season, so we just see it more now. There are people who won't take a stand on an issue unless they get their polling data in. And then they figure out what the public consensus is, and they lead by that way. Some people lead their homes like that. That's why kids are in charge of so many homes. So, so many people in our world that you're going to be ministering to are, are, lead by public consensus. But there's another type of leadership. And there are those who lead by personal conviction. Down deep in the fiber, in the core of their being, they have some convictions about what is right and what is wrong and they leave that way come what may. You see, people who lead by public consensus lead people to do what those people want to do. People who lead by personal conviction that's rooted in the word of God lead people to do what they need to do to be pleasing to God. Now, it's at this very point of these two things here in this text in Matthew 16 that Jesus takes the disciples away from the Galilean crowds and marches them almost 20 miles to the north all the way up to the headwaters of the Jordan, all the way up to the foothills of Mount Hermon, all the way up to where Philip had built the place in honor of the seizure that we call in Scripture Caesarea Philippi. And there he gathers them together in the privacy of a moment one night. And we find our text beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men, anthropos, Properly translated people in new translations. Who do men say? Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Do you see that? That's a question of public consensus. What's polling data showing? What are folks out there saying? We're living in a world where a lot of people never get out of verse 13. Because what men say is more important to them than what God says. What men think about you is more important than what God thinks for some people. And so what happened? They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Do you see that? That's not the question of public consensus. That is the question of personal conviction. That's the question of your time. This is the question in an increasingly pluralistic culture in which you're going to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ that you must get solidly fixed in your heart and mind. And so I've got two brief points to this message. First of all, I want us to stop for just a moment and look at this question of public consensus in verse 13. Who do men say, Jesus says? Who do the people say? You've been out there, he said. You've been out there in the Galilean crowds. Who do the people say that I am? And what happens? Whoosh, they get in a little holy huddle, the disciples. And, and they, they pull out all their polling data. They've been down there among the crowds. They've been listening to the people. They've been immersing themselves in the masses of people on the northern shore of Galilee, expending themselves physically and emotionally and spiritually and listening to what the people are saying. And so they, they said, well, one of them spoke up and said, well, my, my data says they're saying you're, you got the spirit of John the Baptist come back. You know, John the Baptist had just lost his head, remember? I mean, literally had it cut off. And so one of them said, well, I hear people saying that they think the spirit of John the Baptist has come back in you. Another said, no, 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 that's not what my polling data shows. It says they're saying that you're Elijah, the man of prayer. By the time we come to Matthew 16, they've seen him do so much by prayer. Somebody else says, no, no, no. They're saying you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You know, later they would see him weep at the tomb of Lazarus. They'd see him weep with deep sobs on Palm Sunday Road. And then another interjected, no, that's not what they're saying. They're saying you're just another one of the prophets. Things haven't changed much. Ask our Islamic friends who he is and that's the answer you'll get from them. He's just another one of the prophets. You see what happens in this verse in a culture in which we live. We live in a world where what men say has become more important than what God says. That's a culture you go out to minister in. You don't go out to minister in a 1950s culture in the Bible Belt. You go out to minister in a culture where what men say is far more important than what God says. You see it every day. I saw it this morning. I read the Dallas paper and the Fort Worth paper every morning. And, and, and you know what I uh, I saw in the paper this morning? Same thing. I see every morning an opinion section. I thought this morning, why isn't there a conviction section? Why didn't, why didn't the Fort Worth Star-Telegram come over here and get Dr. Dockery every day to write, a, write an article in there about the convictions of the Word of God? Why is there just an opinion section? Why? Because what men say is far more important in our world today that you're going out to minister in than what God says. I often think about what would happen if Jesus and some of the things he said in the gospel appeared and showed up today. Hey, any of you ever seen The View? Don't you raise your hand. What about, what if Jesus showed up on The View with Joy and Whoopi and all that crowd? And in the middle of that conversation, he said, just a minute, Joy. I said, well, you should ask your husband about that. And she said, well, I'm not married. He said, well, you sure not. He said, you've been married five times. That guy you're living with now, he's not even your husband. Why, you bigot. You've got no right to say that. You see, we live in a world where what men say has become more important than what God says. Now, what happens when that takes place? What happens when what men say becomes more important than what God said. It gives rise to two things. Pluralistic compromise and political correctness. First of all, when what men say is more important than what God says, it gives rise to pluralistic compromise. Now, in our theological jargon, we call that pluralism. And what is pluralism? It simply means that we're all going to the same place. We're all going to heaven. They're just a plurality of ways that we get there. And so, Muslims go in on one road, and our Jewish friends go in on one road, and Jehovah's Witnesses go in on one road, and Mormons go in on one road, and Roman Catholics go in on one road, and Hindus go in on one road, we evangelicals go in on one road. We're all going to the same place, they say. We're just taking different routes to get there. Uh, when men, what men say becomes more important than what God said, it always gives rise to pluralistic compromise. I'll tell you something else it gives rise to, political correctness. And to be politically correct in some of the Christian world today, we have a word for it. It's called inclusivism. In other words, everybody is included in the atonement. So it borders over there as close as you can get to the border of universalism that says everybody's going to heaven anyway. So why should we be concerned as believers about those two things, pluralism and inclusivism? What does pluralism do? Pluralism affects our doctrine, what we believe, our message. Because if you believe there are these pluralities of ways that people are getting to heaven, why would you ever have to worry or care about something of Christology like the virgin birth or his sinless life or his vicarious death or any of the great doctrinal truths of the word of God. They would be meaningless if we're given away to plurality. What does inclusivism do? It affects our duty, how we behave, our mission as believers. Because you see, if, if, everybody, if you believe everybody's going to heaven anyway, there are two things you have no need of in the church anymore, and that's evangelism and missions. So it shouldn't surprise you when you go to the headquarters of many of these former mainline denominations that there are two departments that are no longer exist there, evangelism and missions. But this question in verse 13 is not the question for us. Because we are a part of a people who care more what God says, I hope, than what man says. So finally, let's zero in on this question of personal conviction that he asks in verse 15. Who do you say that I am? Because you see, there's an alternative to pluralism and inclusivism. And it's what we call the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus said in John 14, 6, when he said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one, that's pretty emphatic, no one comes to the Father unless he comes through me. A lot of people who preach that today, you know what? They're they're blamed and they're caught. They say that there's some people that say that that is a Christology that has made in America stamped on it. No, it's a Christology that has made in heaven stamped on it. It got to us through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it was delivered to us across the centuries by millions of people who gave their lives to be stewards of this gospel message. Who do you say that I am? Back to Caesarea Philippi. It's emphatic. In the language of the text. In other words, that you is where, it, if we had, we've been listening to Jesus ask this question, he would have asked it like this. What about you? Now, this is one place the NIV gets it right. There may be other places for you NIV lovers, but I know this is one that gets it right. What about you? He said, you and you only, you and you alone, you and nobody else. What about you? Who do you say that I am? That's, that's the emphatic way he asked it. And God bless Simon Peter. We, he, we, we are quick to rag on him quicker than anybody else. Boastful, proud, we call But here, he's inspired of the Holy Ghost. And he answers emphatically the same way. And here's the way he answered it, really. He said, you, you Lord, and you alone. You and no possibility of anybody else. You and you only. You and you alone are whole Christos, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. The question of our time. What moved Simon Peter, who made this great confession, to die his martyr's death? We don't know for sure how he died, but tradition tells us that he was crucified. And tradition tells us that when it came time for him to be crucified, after having watched his wife's crucifixion, he made a request of his crucifiers that he not being worthy to be crucified in the manner of his Savior requested to be crucified upside down. And that's why when you go into uh, liturgical churches, and you may see the marks of the apostles in stained glass or something. Peter's symbol and Peter's mark is an inverted cross. What motivated Peter to die a death like that? Did he die his martyr's death because he believed in pluralism? Because he believed that there were all these plurality People don't die for that. He gave his life. Because he insisted that Christ was the only hope of eternal life. The only way to heaven. And I would to God we could bring that big fisherman up here on this platform this morning. And ask him to testify to you of the exclusivity of Christ. He would say the same thing to you he said in Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's what? No other name. None other name under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved. What motivated Paul, who gave you half your New Testament, to die his martyr's death? Beheaded, most likely outside the city gates of Rome. Did he give his life? Did he willingly lay his head down on that chopping block for that axe to decapitate him in that brutal, horrible type of martyr's death? Did he die because he held to inclusivism? He believed everybody's going to be saved. People don't give their lives to that. These these tremendous people in that first epoch of Christian history insisted... That Christ was the only way to eternal life. And I wish I could bring Paul up here today just to testify to you. That little Jew bent over every bone, hardly had been broken in his body, stoned at Lystra and left for dead. He'd say the same thing to you he said in the first letter he wrote to the Galatians. He'd stand up here and he'd look you in the face and he'd say, should, should we or should I or should any other creature preach any other gospel to you? Let him be accursed. John, exiled on Patmos over 90. I wish I could bring him up here to testify. You know what he'd say to you? He'd say the same thing to you he said in his first epistle, chapter five, and also in his gospel. He'd look into your face this morning and he'd say, he that hath the son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And as he said in the gospel, the wrath of God abides on him. Now, when we say, like they, that Christ is the only way to eternal life, when we answer the question of our time, you know what people call us? You know what people think about most of us who are conservative evangelicals? They think we're, they call us narrow minded. I heard somebody say one time they think we're so narrow minded that a gnat could stand on the bridge of our nose and peck out of both eyes at the same time. That's pretty narrow minded. But but I want to remind you of something in this place that is the very nature of truth. All truth is narrow, mathematical truth is narrow. Two plus two equals four. When I was in first grade over at D. McRae Elementary School on the east side of Fort Worth, and, and I'd put five on a, on a test like that, and my pe- teacher had got big red pencil making it. They used to tick me off. I was so close. I mean, can't you cut a little slack? I just missed it by one, but you can't. Why? Because mathematical truth is narrow. Scientific truth is narrow. You say, how do you figure that? Well, water freezes at what? Thirty-two Degrees Fahrenheit, not 33, not 34, not 35. That's pretty narrow. Mathematical truth, scientific truth. Geographical truth is narrow. We're, we're bordered from with Oklahoma by the Red River, not, not the Sabine River. Historical truth is narrow. John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln in the Ford Theater in Washington, D.C. He didn't stab him in the Bowery in lower Manhattan. So why should we be surprised that theological truth is narrow? What did Jesus say? Enter in where? By the narrow way. Because straight is the gate. And narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. Every epoch of Christian history has had a question from the lips of our Lord that it was imperative that they answer. At that first epoch, will you lay down your life for me? You know, walk walk over there on the martyr's walk. I do that often. I stop at every one of those places and see our Southwesterners who met martyr's deaths over there. But for most of us, that's not going to be the question of our time. Will you lay down your life for me? What think you the Christ whose son is he? We settled that centuries ago at Nicaea. When the son of man returns, will he find faith? That's not the question of your time. We're preaching the gospel over the whole world today. You have a question, however, for your time. Who do you say that I am? Let me just close with, You know, I've written a biography that'll be out in the first quarter next year on Dr. W.A. Criswell. I was his successor at First Baptist Dallas. He in many ways was like a father to me. I suppose I've read virtually every book he's ever written in the course of the study and research for this biography. I've listened to hundreds of his sermons and he closed a sermon that I listened to the other day in an incredible way, in an incredible fashion. Let me just paraphrase a bit of what he said. He said, I think of that grand and glorious day when all the redeemed of all the ages, every tongue and nation, tribe and people are gathered around the throne of God in heaven and we're worshiping the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that great praise service, Here come the patriarchs of the Old Testament, and they come walking by, Abraham and Isaac, and there's Jacob, and I've written books on leadership on some of those patriarchs, and 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 there they are, and they come walking by, but I'm not one of them. And then I look, and, and behold, here come the sweet psalmist of Israel, Asaph, and And David and the sons of Korah, I've memorized so many of their psalms. I've sung them to myself in times of need. They brought such comfort to me. And here come the sweet psalmist of Israel, and they come walking by in that scene. But but I'm not one of them. And then I look, and here come a bunch of men with their shoulders back walking the, 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 the prophets of the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Daniel, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and all, the, all Micah, and, and they're all the prophets of the Old Testament. They come walking by, but I'm not one of them. And then I look, and here come the glorious apostles of the New Testament. Andrew, and there's Peter, his brother, who Who's there because Andrew found him, James and John, the sons of Zebedee and Bartholomew and, and, and on and on. There come the glorious apostles of the New Testament and they come marching right by in front of me, but I am not one of them. And then all of a sudden, a mass of people start coming and walking by, the martyrs of the church. Savannah there they're burned at the stake in Florence. Tyndale and Huss and perpetual and on and on and on bill wallace uh and they're all the martyrs of the church throughout the ages and they come walking by but i'm not one of them and then i look and i behold a multitude of people which no man can number who are these These are they whose robes have been washed white in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I belong to that great throng of the redeemed. Look and live, wash and be clean. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. You go out to face a world where what men say is more important than what God says. And you have a question for your time. Who do you say that I am? Pray to God you answer it in the face of a world that's gone awry and join Simon Peter. You and you alone are the Christ, the Son, of the living God. That's our message for a world that's lost around us. That's the question of your time. Let's pray. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. In Jesus' name.